The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Improving Outcomes for Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. Expert perspectives on incorporating the latest guidelines and evidence into clinical practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SRU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Greetings, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Sanjay Pagani from the Royal Free Hospital in London, um, United Kingdom. Welcome to this educational activity. Uh, we're going to focus today on managing hospitalized patients with COVID-19. I have with me a really diverse and very learned panel from both sides of the Atlantic, who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves, uh, and then we'll get going. So uh, let's first of all uh, stay in the UK and start with Professor Sappy. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction as well. So my name is Professor Liz Sapi. I'm a respiratory physician, and I work in acute medicine at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham in the UK. Thank you very much and welcome to this. Uh, we'll then go across to the other side of the Atlantic and we'll start with um, Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, Robert, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bagani. Uh, my name is Robert Gottlieb. I am a transplant cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. And during the pandemic, many of my patients who are immunosuppressed have been particularly vulnerable. And it's great to be in the area of the pandemic where we have evidence to inform what therapies to offer our patients to help them to recover and get back to health. Thank you, Robert, and welcome. And also on the other side of the Atlantic and, and uh, working uh, closely uh, uh, at the center uh, is Erin uh, Duheim. Erin, uh, welcome and please introduce yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Erin Duheim. I'm a PA with the infectious disease team here at uh, Baylor University Medical Center. Um, I see COVID patients as outpatient and then inpatient um, and also in the ICU on, and the floor. So got a well-rounded view of, of COVID-19 at this point. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Erin, and uh, welcome to you too. So fantastic panel. Uh, let's get on with this. I, I think, you know, what, what is important for today is that we're going to try and, and focus on the management of um, uh, hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And we're going to try and, and highlight some of the differences between the USA and Europe and, 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 and look at a number of different aspects uh, of inpatient management. So I suppose uh, let's start with thinking about assessing COVID severity. Um, I think what is of real interest and, and, you know, we'll speak to the panel about this in a second, is that not only have we seen the virus emerge uh, from Wuhan spread across the world, but, you know, it, it, as RNA viruses do, it has mutated and we have what we what is now called variants of concern. And there's a number of different variants of concern that have emerged uh, from the very early days of 2020. Um, and so I, I, I'm going to define what a variant of concern is, and then we will talk a little bit about the different variants that we've seen through uh, the times and where we're at currently. A variant of concern is, you know, a, a mutation in the virus uh, that makes it uh, able 
to disseminate across large populations of people, it becomes a variant of concern, you know, when it either escapes um, immunity, which is either natural or vaccine-induced, or uh, it causes more severe disease, or it escapes therapeutics that are currently around. And so, you know, once that starts to happen, and, and you know, the WHO monitors this very, very carefully in terms of sequencing data, once that starts to happen, then, then a variant is labeled as a variant of concern. So I'm going to come to Elizabeth first. Elizabeth, you know, the, the, the first variant uh, that we saw after the virus emerged from Wuhan. So, you know, we saw the, the, the D614G mutation uh, as soon as the virus had come out of Wuhan. And then, you know, in the early uh, part of, of uh, 2020, you know, after the first wave, we saw what was called the alpha variant or what was described as the Kent variant. What was different in that disease? Thank you. Well, when we knew COVID was approaching the UK, it was a period of huge worry and concern for patients, for the public and for clinicians as well, as we didn't really know what we'd be facing, although we had an inkling it would be bad. At that time, of course, we weren't doing community testing. We didn't have the means to do that. And even in hospitals, testing results lagged considerably after patients presented to the hospital. It was very difficult to predict at that time who was going to go downhill and who wasn't. But we knew we were faced with a very variable disease, which affected some people very mildly. At that time, children in the main asymptomatic or very mild symptoms. But where I worked, we saw a considerable number of patients coming in in respiratory distress with pulmonary infiltrates and high inflammatory markers that we really didn't know how to treat. And that was our experience, unfortunately, of the first wave until we started to understand a little bit more in how to look after patients. So thank you, uh, Liz. And, 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 and this was particularly true once, you know, once uh, we got hit with the, the alpha variant, which, which appeared to spread more easily. We were seeing huge numbers of infections come through. Uh, and then we moved into the sort of beta and, and gamma variants. And, and Erin, I suppose, you know, the Americas saw, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the, the, the beta and gamma variants before the world uh, went into delta. What was your experience? experience at the time? You know, honestly, it kind of ran together. I didn't notice a big difference until Delta. Um, I, you know, people, lots of people presenting to the hospital, like Dr. Uh, Dr. Sapi said, uh, high inflammatory markers. That's where I saw the ferritin and the CRPs were very high. People coming in with ADRS and um, needing steroids uh, right away. So um, that's kind of how it went here in Dallas. Fantastic. And, and, you know, we're into, you know, the end of 2022, 2023, and we're, we're now into the sort of Omicron variant and, and then the sub-variants uh, of Omicron. And, and Robert, what's, what's your experience of, of the Omicron variants and, and sub-variants? I, I, we know that, you know, the, the, the uh, North America is, is now being hit by, you know, the BA2 sub-variants. Uh, has the disease been different? In approximately December of 2021, in the United States, we started seeing the first Omicron variants, uh, particularly B11529, at that time, appear on the scene. And there was great desire to will the virus 
to bend to our desires for this virus to be less virulent, less consequential. Uh, unfortunately, it, within a rounding error, it's not a less virulent um, variant. It's not an attenuated variant. Um, fast forward to now when we see China starting to be exposed to the subsequent Omicron variants, we see that in an under-vaccinated, under-recovered population, it really reproduces uh, some of the challenges that we faced here uh, in the early phases of the pandemic. Now, fortunately, in the United States, in Europe, in most areas of the world, we have the benefit of both hard-fought recovery as well as extensive vaccination campaigns that do make the virus something that we can treat, live with, and recover for most of us. However, we do still lose some of our patients, either by chance and bad luck or genetic predispositions or other risk factors, uh, or in rare cases because they just haven't seen the virus and they've opted not to become vaccinated. Fast forward uh, to the remainder of 2022 and going into 2023, we've gone through different variants, BA1, BA2, BA4, 5, uh, and now we're seeing the immune evasiveness of the BQ1, BQ11, and XBB variants that are really escaping from our neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. But fortunately, we have a depth of therapies, both on the outpatient side, as well as on the inpatient side, to help patients recover. And vaccinations are continuing to do their job of preventing progression to hospitalization, preventing death. Um, they are not preventing mild to moderate disease, which quite frankly, uh, uh, we need to educate the public that it's okay we want to defang the virus. We want to make it a common cold. We want to make it not a SARS virus. And that's what our hard-fought immunity pr from prior recovery, as well as our vaccination campaigns are doing, even as there's minor uh, escape uh, from our pre-existing immunity. Thank you. Uh, and, then, and I think this is, this is really crucial, isn't it, Robert? In, in, in other words, you know, People talk about, you know, Omicron being, you know, a, a milder variant. And actually, I am not sure that, that the virus itself has got uh, any milder. In other words, it's, it's, it's affecting a population that is highly immunized and has probably been exposed in the past, as we are seeing now. Uh, and we'll see more data from China come through in the next few months, but we've already seen this in, in, in Hong Kong, uh, that it, this certainly isn't a milder disease in an unvaccinated, you know, unexposed population. Uh, and so we, we're now going to try and, and see if we can think a little bit about the clinical spectrum uh, of infection. And Liz, I'm going to come back to you on this one, but this is the NIH description of the clinical spectrum. Would you mind taking us through this? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, of course, this is mainly used um, in, in, in America, although it's a reference range that we all look at. And it has a real spectrum of illness from the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic infection, mild, moderate, severe, and critical illness. And I think in each of the categories, as the guidelines show, it very clearly defines which group a patient might be in at that moment of time that you see them. It also provides information about the clinical tests that you might have coming back, for example, looking at lung infiltrates and severe illness, the percentage of lung infiltrates that are there, or the respiratory rate. I guess a word of caution when looking at this, it tells you where the patient is right now, and you have to put that in the context 
of when their infection started and what you think it might progress to become, but it does enable you to start planning management of that patient there and then based on their symptoms, signs and initial investigations. So that's, that's a, 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 you make a really important point there. So, so this is the patient that is in front of you. And, and as you, as you correctly say, you know, you can categorize them in many different ways. And we'll, we'll look at the WHO categorization in a second as well. You can categorize them in, in many different ways. I suppose the, the, the big question, and this was a question that we asked ourselves right at the beginning is how are we going to predict, you know, who's going to progress? Um, through that spectrum to, 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 to become critically unwell so that we can intervene early. Robert, any, any thoughts on this? So yes, I think that um, early in the pandemic, when we were designing clinical trials, we all assumed that inflammatory markers would help us predict who would progress on. However, it's been a humbling exercise, and I would say the inflammatory markers do not allow us to predict as well as we would have hoped. It doesn't allow us to def- discreetly bin. There are some patients that have lower inflammatory markers that still relatively um, progress. And concomitantly, our therapies that we know that can help intervene also modify these inflammatory markers. Now that is a beneficial consequence. We'll hear Dr. Sapi talk about corticosteroids and other immunomodulatory agents that have really changed the spectrum. But I would say one of the things that as a global community, we've learned a lot about how to cooperate cooperate across borders, across barriers, but we've also been very humbled by some of our predictions that have not um, held fruit as much as we thought. And the inflammatory markers um, have not been as strong of a predictor especially for predicting clinical trial outcomes, as we would have expected. So, I, you know, for me, one of the, the, the interesting things was that we learned very early on uh, about patient-related factors that could help predict progression. In other words, you know, older comorbidities. There was some question about race in the UK as well. Uh, and so this became really important factors. But but what we couldn't do is once that, that patient had presented to a hospital, we couldn't say who was going to, to progress or not. I know that, that in the UK, we, we looked at a number um, of, of scorings systems that might help us predict that and yes useful uh, or but but not a hundred percent you know accurate in terms of of deciding at the front door which of these patients was going to get sick there is some interest um, uh, uh, of late uh, looking at uh, plasma levels uh, of antigen uh, and 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 this is becoming, you know, maybe one of the markers, biomarkers that we may be able to think about uh, in the future in terms of 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 trying to risk stratify people as they're being hospitalised. Because you know we we can risk stratify people in terms of being uh, being hospitalised, but once they're hospitalised, this becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, so I, I suppose. Uh, you know, one of the key issues, and, and this became a, a, a real story at the time, um, Aaron, was the, the use of pulse oximetry. Um, what's your experience around pulse oximetry and, and, and how useful was that uh, both in the community and once patient got into hospital? 
Um, community, you know, when COVID first hit, nobody had a pulse oximeter at home at all. Um, and so you did have to, you know, my higher risk patients in clinic is outpatient. I would, and you know, recommend that they pick one up. They're not sick yet. If you do get sick, you have it. Um, and so those were actually flying off the shelves here. Um, people were saying they couldn't find them. So um, it was helpful if they had a pulse, <laughs> pulse oximeter. If they didn't have it, then it wasn't very helpful. I had to kind of go um, on their clinical presenting symptoms and send them to the ER to be evaluated. Um, in the ER, I think we meet most of our our patients, our COVID positive patients in the ER. Um, and I think they the capacity, it was over capacity. We had patients in hallways. Um, nurses in the ER were not able to document um, pulse ox, you know, completely. So you'd see, you know, you'd see things that were kind of worrisome, but then you'd see the patient and clinically they were doing great um, or opposite. Um, and so it, it is helpful, but again, kind of just what Dr. Safi said, it's right then and there. It's giving you information right then um, on on the oxygen status, but but there's lots of things that, um, you know, that, that can be affected. Uh, you know, skin pigmentation, um, fingernail polish, if they have poor circulation, those can affect, affect those results. So we weren't going just by pulse ox. We were also obviously looking at labs, imaging, and how they were presenting and, and clinically looked. Thank you, Erin. And that's, that's really useful. And there's some, some really uh, useful pointers in there. Uh, and so, you know, the WHO um, actually took a step back and said, look, let's try and make this as easy as we can. Because remember, this is a global problem. Not everybody has, has access to arterial blood gases to do your uh, FP ratios, etc. And so let's just divide disease into non-severe, severe and critical. And, and this is, you know, this is what the, the, the WHO definitions look like. And this, these are very useful uh, because it helps us classify patients in terms of um, responses in clinical trials. But, but you know, I, I think we all, we all understand, you know, the, 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 the severity of the disease and, and, and what it looks like. So, Robert, just a, a brief kind of um, uh, look at what your initial evaluation uh, would entail. So I think that one of the um, points that we were just discussing, pulse oximetry is really critical because although there is the discrepancy between the WHO and the NIH scales, um, it's important to note that this is a SARS virus and the SARS virus demands a slightly different treatment than some of our other respiratory viruses. Uh, for example, we in the United States have utilization review requirements that traditionally say, why are you admitting a patient to a hospital uh, for a, uh, a viral pneumonia if their oxygen level is not less than 88%? And I think one of the things that the NIH guideline uh, and um, naming convention for disease severity demonstrates is this is a different respiratory virus and that patients may be at risk even with a higher oxygen and saturation level. We all see routinely that a patient may, for example, have a uh, oxygen saturation of 95%. But if you road test them in the emergency room, you may see that just going across the room, they may easily desaturate to the 70s and they may not even perceive that dyspnea. So I would say one of the things to ask is not just what is the oxygen level uh, by plethysmography, but also what happens when you 
have that patient exert very gently, even with activities of daily living, getting across the room. And it's okay to hospitalize a patient with an oxygen level that is far greater than 88% or just because you're worried about that patient. Um, the initial uh, assessment varies depending on where you're at and depending on infection control processes. Uh, in the United States, we've been he very heavy into just plain film radiography. It's actually been um, a renaissance of very simple techniques rather than using high technology. Um, the number of CAT scans in the United States, computed tomography has decreased dramatically. Whereas in other parts of the world, we've actually paradoxically seen an increase. It's of course important to take a survey of hematologic parameters. We know that neutrophilia and lymphopenia are both predictors of hospitalization. Uh, my transplant patients have a lymphopenia that may be intrinsic and actually needs to be thought of a little differently because the lymphopenia of transplant doesn't necessarily equate to the same risk that lymphopenia would otherwise equate to but more progressive lymphopenia certainly does predict a higher risk. Um, the, of course, the basic uh, metabolic profile, creatinine, renal function, it dictates the risk. We see that patients with comorbidities, especially renal dysfunction, uh, are at higher risk of both hospitalization and adverse outcomes up to and including uh, death. Um, we've seen that time and time ag and again. Uh, or we might find that we have patients with acute renal failure uh, because they might um, either early in the pandemic have nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea and losses, or they might just have a, a, a SIRS state or, and uh, be very inflammatory. We've also seen that the albumin, particularly the, the decline in albumin over time, may predict who's more inflammatory and may progress. And of course, nothing replaces clinical judgment. We've also seen that D-dimer, that we usually think of as a dichotomous, yes, no, positive, negative, for risk of needing a CAT scan, potentially if you're worried about pulmonary embolism. In this case, we see that yes, COVID increases the risk of pulmonary embolism, but the D-dimer is almost universally elevated in patients hospitalized, even in the absence of pulmonary embolism. And so uh, certainly the D-dimer has had a renaissance in predicting who uh, uh, is inflamed in addition to that CRP that we were talking about. And each of these needs to be put in context. And ultimately, clinicians that have treated multiple COVID-19 patients probably have a better uh, sense uh, at clinical bedside as who's going to uh, be at risk for progression. Um, so, um, Liz, I'm just going to bring you in very briefly around this. In the UK, one of the things that, that we were particularly um, uh, keen on using was a, was a clinical frailty score because we saw a lot of elderly patients. What's your experience with this? Yeah, so it was information that we were collecting in older patients. We weren't using it in younger patients or those with stable long-term disabilities because we know that it isn't effective there. Um, but to give us an indication of of um, the likely response that people may have to treatments as well as their clinical course. And this is really important because um, I agree with everything Robert said in terms of how we would evaluate patients. But to add to that, that 
you need to make a judgment, not only what care do patients need now in terms of COVID, but that holistic approach about what therapies would meet their expectations, which are likely to be beneficial or futile, and how can you care for that patient, thinking about them in their entirety, as opposed to just trying to stratify the virus. So um, the CSF scale was really helpful in terms of um, prognostication, but also gave you an indication of duration of admission, maybe ceilings of treatment if you thought a patient may not be um, suitable for invasive ventilation, if you thought that might be a futile treatment for them that may cause more upset rather than any benefits, and in order to think about the different specialisms that might be needed to come in and look after those patients as well. Yeah, and that's that's really crucial, isn't it? I, I, and, 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 you know, we, we used a lot of this in, in you know, health services are really tight and, and, you know, we were we were making sure that people got their appropriate services to their needs. Uh, and so this was really, really helpful. Um, we're, we're going to move on uh, to kind of think a little bit about identifying patients at higher risk of progression due to severe COVID-19. Erin, do you want to take us through some of the factors that came through uh, very early on in terms of identifying who's likely to progress to severe disease? Yeah, um, you know, early on, we were, again, didn't really know a lot about risk factors. So it was something we learned as we went. Um, we it, here in Dallas, uh, we, we actually saw uh, obesity as a significant um, risk factor here, um, not just diabetes, just, you know, hypertension and obesity, and they would, you know, you know, at high risk. Um, but since, since, you know, with the evolution of this pandemic and we're learning a lot, um, patients who are 65 or older, um, are, so just age um, is a risk factor. Um, any underlying conditions um, like, uh, well, not any, but underlying conditions such as asthma, diabetes, I mentioned um, obesity, um, untreated or advanced HIV infection and AIDS, um, any, you know, uh, cancer that's going on, um, and especially if they are on um, chemotherapy or anything that would affect their immune system and make them immunocompromised, um, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, liver disease, a chronic lung disease, um, and cigarette smoking, and obviously patients like Dr. Gottlieb's that are transplant patients and are on immunosuppressive therapy. Thanks, Aaron. And that's really, really useful. And this still stands even now uh, that these are kind of the risk factors associated uh, with progression. Um, I, I, Liz, just to bring you in very quickly, in the, in the UK, we, we have kind of identified uh, a subset who are at highest risk, who get, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of outpatient therapies via the COVID medicines dispensing units. Uh, just a brief summary of those. Of course, of course. So it's patients with one or more risk factor, beautifully outlined, really, I think, by Erin. So those that we know have got significant comorbidities or immunosuppressed, or we think are unlikely to have mounted a good response to the to the vaccine program. And there, if we think that patients are at risk of progression, there is a treatment pathway that enables you to provide therapies to try and prevent that progression. So, you know, I, I, just to explain the, the natural history, 
uh, of COVID-19 in, in a pathophysiological manner. Um, so, so this is something that we learned uh, quite uh, early on. We think there is, you know, the, 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 first, the, the early stage of, of, of infection where there is uh, lots of viral replication. The immune response kicks in with an antiviral response. And if you're successful, you go on uh, to resolve symptoms and, and everything is fine. Um, sometimes, you know, the viral replication continues uh, despite the immune response and, and it starts to cause, you know, your pneumonitis and multi-organ uh, inflammation. And this, then, in in a small subset of, of of patients, can can progress to a, a hyperinflammatory response, where the immune response has not been successful uh, in clearing the virus completely. The immune response has gone out of control, uh, and and these are the patients that that often end up in hospital and on your intensive care unit. Uh, we've also learned that you know the, your your interferon responses are really crucial in this. This is the part of your innate immune response that kicks in, you know, very early on in infection. And if there is a delayed type 1 or type 3 interferon response, then this kind of precludes a, 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 an adaptive response and, and precludes viral replication control uh, very early on. And so then leads to um, a, a, an inflammatory response that includes a, a huge number uh, of inflammatory mediators uh, and, and cells that are involved in this uh, and eventually leads to endothelial um, activation and, and uh, thromboembolism uh, as well. So when we think about therapeutics uh, and intervention, then, you know, one needs to think about therapeutics in, in two different ways. You, you think about preventing viral infection, you think about early interventions with antiviral agents and then as the immune response has gone out of control you then think about immunomodulator therapy and there's a, a huge uh, uh, overlap between these different phases and so you know we need to try and work out what therapies are best for people at what stage we know that the best prevention clearly is vaccine uh, and and you know there's, there's uh, beyond any reasonable doubt, really good data out there now to suggest uh, that vaccination, uh, even if it doesn't completely prevent infection, will prevent severe disease and severe outcomes. Uh, and so that's the best prevention. But there are people uh, and, and, you know, a lot of immunosuppressed uh, patients out there who are not able to mount uh, an antibody response to vaccines. And for that group of patients, it's important that preventative therapy and monoclonal antibodies is probably the only thing that's been tried so far and has been successful. Uh, uh, although, you know, the, as the variants evolve, they're escaping uh, the currently available monoclonal antibodies, but that seems to be a good way forward. We, we will look at studies uh, in the very near future, which will think about antivirals, at least in the post-exposure uh, type setting. Then you look at early intervention for uh, the group that, that Aaron and, and uh, Liz talked about. So these are people at high risk of progression, even though they don't have symptoms at that stage. And then early intervention in that group of patients may be very, very useful. We have got some data, at least in terms of antivirals, 
uh, that worked uh, and were useful uh, in in terms of preventing hospitalization or death and and you know we won't look at this data in detail today but but there is data out there and then as people get into hospital things start to change you you know you, you if they're early then antivirals may be really useful and we'll talk about remdesivir in a second uh, as an intervention in 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 early hospitalization and as that people get sicker and, and into the more hyperinflammatory phase of, of disease then uh, immunosuppression or immunomodulator therapies uh, will become more important so that's a kind of brief overview of therapeutics but what we would now like to do is to start looking at some of the guidelines and looking at some of the specific issues so i got to um uh, first of all go to to liz and we'll talk about nice now you know the uk have nice which not only makes guidelines but also decides on cost effectiveness of therapy yes. so yes. please walk us through this liz thank you thank you yeah absolutely so the first thing I would say about this slide is if you look at the no oxygen support early COVID-19, but at high risk of progression, in July, the guidelines were still suggesting neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. And we know that these are not as effective against the, the newer variants that we've seen as they were against the Delta variant. And so I think this slide shows how quickly COVID guidelines go out of date. Um, and that would be maybe a take home message to talk about later. You always need to make sure that you're looking at the most up to date guideline. So we won't talk about no oxygen support, that group of patients at high risk of progression on this slide. And instead, we'll look at the low flow oxygen and the high flow oxygen CPAP or mechanical ventilation component. And you can see that the NICE guidelines recommend corticosteroids across that group requiring oxygen, no matter whether they have have a low oxygen requirement, high or indeed need ventilatory support. And then you can see the um, use of the IL-6 antagonists and then coming in the jet kinase inhibitors as well with low molecular weight heparin um, at a standard prophylactic dose being recommended as well because of that increased risk of venous thrombolic events that we were seeing. Um, and then you have conditional use of other medications coming down the line with treatments that were less readily available at that time. But again, looking at your um, antivirals with remdesivir being there, looking at your jack kinase inhibitors and the other IL, um, the anti-IL-6 that we have available. What I wanted to go through in a bit more detail is how the policy for looking up after patients who um, are not requiring oxygen but are at a higher risk of progression and what their management looks like in the UK now. And this is the policy update that came out um, in November of last year now, looking at what our first line, second line and third line treatments are. And you can see that there's a really helpful flow diagram which you can go through in your own time when looking at these slides, but you can see that the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies have disappeared from that component of the guideline now. And we're really, really focusing on the early identification of patients at risk, understanding which treatment might be the most suitable for them, thinking about the comorbidities they have and contraindications to therapies, but really utilizing our antivirals here. And the recommendations are to use them early in those patients who are at risk. And we have a first line, second line, and third line choice outlined by NICE, as you can see. 
There are also therapies which are now um, recommended only in research. And these are for some pediatric um, treatments such as the, the tocilizumab for children and young people and also therapies that have shown an interesting signal in early research studies, but where NICE feels more evidence is required and they should only be utilized as part of a research study. That includes bednezolide, an inhaled corticosteroid, following signals of benefit in a clinical trial that came out of the UK, um, and also the use of remdesivir in high flow oxygen therapy and the idea of using intermediate or treatment dose in oxaparin in uh, in um, in COVID-19. So these are where NICE is saying these shouldn't be utilised as part of standard clinical care and you should be only using them as part of a clinical trial. And then there are therapies that have not been recommended um, that are very clearly you're asked not to use them in the settings as given um, because NICE has evaluated the evidence and found it to either have um, a poor quality, low evidence of efficacy or poor cost effectiveness. Thank you, Liz. That's really fantastic. And I, and I think that's a, a great summary of, of what we actually do in the UK. So the one agent that, that seems to, to cause controversy in, in hospitalised patients um, is remdesivir or, or antivirals uh, as a group. Uh, in other words, you know, by the time people get into a hospital, we think they're probably at the end of that viral replication phase and, and you know, the hyperinflammatory um, immune system has kicked in and and you know the question always becomes you know do antivirals uh, have an effect uh, in that population um, so Robert I'm going to come back to you around this because I think this is this is really important we have some um, clinical trials some randomized control trials but we also have real world evidence that has looked at this um, and would you mind taking us through uh, some of that because in the UK it's, it's only conditionally uh, approved by NICE. So I'd like to discuss some real-world evidence uh, that we've uh, collected over the course of the pandemic. Um, if we think back to the early phases of the pandemic, we had to work stepwise to garner this evidence, first starting with randomized controlled trials. And the pivotal trial was ACT-1, early in the pandemic, prior to the advent of corticosteroids um, and the evidence basis for that. Um, and this was international, well-run, well-conducted. And we showed there was a decreased time to clinical recovery, particularly patients for patients on non-invasive mechanical ventilation uh, that hadn't progressed to that point yet. So particularly for patients on low flow, as well as early phases of high flow uh, oxygen support. Um, that being said, we, it would be always natural to ask, well, wouldn't it be better to treat earlier uh, so, for example, before patients get to that phase. And then the second question is, what about mortality? ACT-1 has been cited in terms of mortality as showing an absence of mortality, but that's really not what it showed because it was never powered to ask the question of mortality. You can't ask a trial to demonstrate a mortality benefit when it's not powered for that. What you need to do is you need to develop the early evidence. We showed that it decreased time to clinical recovery, and then subsequent to randomized controlled trials, develop real-world evidence to see uh, those other markers that are so critically important, such as mortality. And this is what we're showing here. Uh, we've done two different analyses uh, with very large clinical databases, 
in the United States. This slide is demonstrating the Health Verity ecosystem with a JAMA Network open paper that was just published on the 1st of December. And what we showed was across the levels of oxygenation support, um, including up until ECMO and invasive mechanical ventilation, surprisingly, uh, that there was a mortality benefit. And we did multiple different um, sensitivity analyses um, looking at differential to prevent differential censoring. And long and the short of it is in multiple different methodologies in multiple different uh, ecosystems of data, we are showing a trend and a demonstration of statistical benefit in decreasing mortality. And in fact, even the solidarity trial where it had a preliminary report um, that was quite frankly preliminary, the final report also showed a 13% mortality benefit uh, for patients that had not yet progressed to mechanical uh, ventilation. So these all corroborate that yes, antivirals can decrease mortality. I think it's also important that in real world settings, we think about that we're not talking about a clinical trial setting. We're not talking about populations per se, but we're trying to treat the patient in front of us. So that allows the clinician to make an individualized decision. For example, in the real world, a patient might be on invasive mechanical ventilation, not because of COVID, but for a different reason and might incidentally have COVID. And they should not be deprived of early interventions. For example, if a patient was driving along today, free breathing, had trauma, and ends up on a ventilator, that does not place them at a higher ordinal scale. Rather, you should impute the ordinal scale uh, or the severity scale where they're at, meet the patient where they're at, and start the intervention. As we're gonna talk about later, uh, we've incrementally also gathered the data that earlier use of antivirals uh, is more effective. Of course, uh, we have to look at different outcomes. We're no longer looking at mortality. When we start treating early, we're actually looking at prevention of hospitalizations. So we have to tailor the question at hand. Thank you, Robert. That's uh, that's really useful. So, so you know, the, the, the take-home message there is that antivirals may still have a role to play in hospitalized patients, uh, especially in early hospitalized patients. And then there's that subgroup of patients that you look after who are immunocompromised, where viral replication uh, may be a key driver uh, to the to the morbidity and mortality, where antivirals may be uh, particularly useful. Um, I, I suppose we we ought to 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 think a little bit about corticosteroids. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to bring you into this just for the moment because uh, you know we. It's if one of the things that we've learned from COVID-19, the single most important uh, life-saving intervention has been corticosteroids, uh, and I wondered whether you know you might uh, want to talk a little bit about the recovery trial and dexamethasone use in in, in hospitalised patients with COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. So the recovery trial was open label. And um, they were, it was randomized controlled, and it was looking at uh, using dexamethasone in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Um, and they were using, uh, they looked at patients who also, you know, were at room air, and they looked at patients that were on low flow oxygen and also patients that were on mechanical ventilation. Um, and, um, you know, Basically, the, the take home is that in patient in hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19 who required supplemental oxygen, um, dexamethasone reduced mortality at 28 days. Um, and the greatest benefit was seen in those receiving uh, mechanical ventilation at randomization. Um, 
There was no survival benefit for dexamethasone in, in patients who did not require supplemental oxygen at randomization. Aaron, I think that's a great point because um, if we go back to the early phases of the pandemic, um, primary care providers in the outpatient setting wanted to be able to help a patient. And one of the things that all physicians have, all providers have to offer is an investment in caring for the patient and sharing that relationship and walking along with the patient. And some well-intentioned individuals have prescribed corticosteroids in the outpatient setting, thinking that would be helpful. And what we've learned is, um, as this group well knows, the early use of corticosteroids in the outpatient setting or even in the inpatient setting uh, prior to the need for oxygen supplementation is actually harmful, certainly in the outpatient setting, actually even increasing the risk of progression to hospitalization. And so it's so critical that the audience recognize that this very same therapy that is so beneficial when patients are hospitalized with hypoxemia due to severe critical COVID-19 is actually harmful in the outpatient setting. And you can do the best for your patient by withholding those corticosteroids unless there's an independent reason that those patients need to be on a corticosteroid. Yeah, and if I can come in actually, Robert, just to add to that really important point, it's also very important to think about the results of the high-dose dexamethasone study that Recovery went on to do that actually showed in patients with no with hypoxia and either no oxygen requirements or simple oxygen requirements, increasing that dose to 20 milligrams of dex was also associated with poorer outcomes for patients, including um, increased um, uh, episodes of pneumonia. So too much of, of something that works at a certain dose, just giving more of a therapy might not be beneficial. And, and the, the high-dose recovery study suggested that it could be harmful in those patients requiring simple oxygen therapy or no oxygen therapy. So it's important to know, as with all therapies, when you need to deploy them and make sure that you get the, the dose right based on the studies and the evidence that's out there. Thank you. And, and, and those are both really important points. Um, I, I, so my understanding is that, that the high dose dexamethasone, at least on the intensive care unit and people that are requiring, uh, ventilatory support is still ongoing, but, but the, the, the high dose dexamethasone has been stopped for those not uh, on the intensive care unit. Uh, and, and we saw, you know, uh, when India went through the Delta, uh, pandemic, or, you know, we saw huge numbers of cases of mucomycosis as a result of very high, uh, doses of, of dexamethasone. So in endemic countries, you know, not only is, is there an issue, uh, you know, with bacterial infections, but you might see fungal infections as well, uh, especially in high risk people. Um, Okay, I, I suppose we, we've talked about, you know, two of the key issues in, in terms of um, therapeutics, uh, you know, corticosteroids uh, and um, uh, antivirals, at least in terms of remdesivir. Uh, Erin, one last question uh, in terms of IL-6 therapies. So, you know, we've seen all the data around tocilizumab and um you know, uh, how effective it is in terms of, of, of the sicker end of the scale of, of, of patients. So both of the intensive care unit and those requiring oxygen and with high uh, inflammatory markers. Uh, I suppose a question that I often get asked is, is there uh, long-term issues with a single dose of IL-6 inhibition in terms of infection risks? 
I think it's, I think that's hard, um, to, hard question to answer, um, in particular because these patients are also being treated with corticosteroids at the same time and, um, and prolonged, you know, prolonged courses in some cases. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I, we did see some, um, we did not see any mucor, but we did see fungal, you know, um, infections in the lungs. We saw, um, lots of bacterial secondary infections. Um, but I think that it is definitely possible. And, you know, it's, it's just hard to kind of weed out because you've got, you're using TOSI with, you know, high dose, uh, you know, corticosteroids. You know, I think it's also interesting to point out that, um, the immunomodulatory agents of, for example, tocilizumab and baricitinib are often spoken of in the same sentence. Uh, but it's also important to note that there's a lot more equanimity in some of the tocilizumab data than there is in the baricitinib JAK-STAT inhibition, where the, at least to my knowledge, the trials have universally been favorable, uh, whereas there are some equivocal or negative trials in the tocilizumab space. So I, I would predict that five years from now, we're going to look back at this and we're going to add more nuance and we're no longer going to be talking about immunomodulatory agents, but we'll be focusing more on the mechanism of action as well. Yeah, important point, uh, Robert. And But, but you know, uh, remember the WHO guidance actually you know, says you could use uh, both of those together. Uh, in other words, they're different modes of activity, and and so maybe different in 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 the way that they they prevent inflammation. Uh, but but these are important questions that we will answer. I think in the next um, few months, we've already seen some data, uh, long term, a ninety day data in terms of tocilizumab from the remap cap trial that suggested there weren't any problems with with you know reactivation of tuberculosis, etc. So I I think single doses are probably reasonably safe and, and short courses of paracetamol are probably reasonably safe. I think we're nearly coming to the end now. And so I'm going to come back to each of you and we're going to start thinking about take home messages uh, for three different sorts of, of patients. So we'll start with you, Erin, in terms of your pre-hospitalization patient. What are the key things that we need to do to prevent hospitalization and prevent death? So I would say a couple different things. Education obviously is very important. Um, promoting and recommending immunizations is very important. Um, and just the education and, and giving them some data behind those recommendations um, to make sure that our community is as well vaccinated as possible. Um, patients that are clinic patients for other things like my HIV patients, um, helping them to understand their risk and the importance of compliance with their HIV medications, for example, um, or glycemic control in my you know, diabetics. Um, I think that that's important for them to know their risks so that if they do develop symptoms, they know who to reach out to, they can get a hold of me, my office 24 seven. Um, they know what signs and symptoms they're looking for and they know their risk so that they know how important it is to get a hold of me. And um, also, you know, once they have, well, in the US, we have given free testing, just antigen testing out. Um, and so a lot of my patients, I make sure that they have tests at home um, and that they can run those tests and they know to do them back to back if the first one's negative um, and making sure they're communicating with us. Um, if they do come back positive or suspect they're positive, the first test is negative, but they're symptomatic, 
um, education on knowing where to send them or, and I say that because we have an infusion center here in my office, so we can do some of the infusions uh, as treatment, but, um, you know, using some of the, you know, the uh, prescription medications and, and looking at their medication list for drug interactions is also very important. Thank you, Erin. And so, you know, you're right. So there are key interventions, aren't they, that, that we can use uh, for high-risk groups of people but who need to be aware that there are interventions available. And these are particularly around antivirals uh, like nirmetrovir and, and uh, you know, molnupiravir, remdesivir. Um, Robert, you know, so once a patient's hospitalized, and you know we're you know, they're, they're 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 becoming progressively unwell, starting to require oxygen. What are the the key interventions at this stage? Well, I know that the focus right now is on treatment of the hospitalized patient. I think it's also important to put this in the context of the pre-hospital outpatient therapies, um, because as the pandemic wears on you are more likely to experience a patient that also might be in the hospital for a different reason and might incidentally have COVID-19 that also warrants therapy to avoid having more uh, issues at the same time. Um, so in that context, I'd like to spend one moment talking about early intervention with antivirals. And this is in the pre-hospital setting that informs what to do in the hospital as well. In the pre-hospital setting, we have multiple different types of highly effective uh, antivirals of different classes. Um, you had mentioned, for example, in the Delta, after the Delta uh, variant had progressed onto Omicron, in the UK, neutralizing monoclonal antibodies had uh, waned in, in their usage. Uh, in the United States, I was fortunate to have access to uh, neutralizing monoclonal antibodies uh, that maintained efficacy. Uh, including some new ones that came online, uh, such as bevtilovimab that was specific to the United States. And that maintained efficacy all the way through um, BA1, BA2, BA4, 5, and only escaped uh, when BQ1 and BQ11 and XBB arrived on the scene uh, more recently. Uh, but in totality, when we look at all of the trials of effective neutralizing monoclonal antibodies for which uh, the variants in circulation have susceptibility, we've seen independent of manufacture, they all reinforce that the early use of a macromolecular antiviral, a neutralizing monoclonal antibody, uh, decreases progression to hospitalization in patients with one or more risk factors. Similarly, we have the outpatient therapy of ritonavir-boosted nermotrelvir. And in fact, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves of progression to hospitalization, um, other than changes in the magnitude, the shape and time of differentiation of the curves of treated and untreated with antiviral, um, they all separate around the same time and they all are reminiscent and reinforce this concept that an early use of an antiviral is effective. Now, we also have this situation of a parenteral therapy of remdesivir that can be used both in the outpatient setting as well as in the inpatient setting. And the pine tree uh, data that you'll see here demonstrates that the early use of three days of remdesivir, 200 milligrams on day one, uh, and then 100 milligrams on day two and three, can prevent progression to hospitalization and decrease hospitalizations by 87% in patients with one or more risk factors for progression when used early within seven days of first symptom and in the trial within four days of the first positive test. 
Fast forward to the hospitalized setting, if a patient happens to be coming in for a procedure and is incidentally found to have COVID-19, I'm also gonna use those outpatient guidelines to treat that patient that is now presenting to me in the hospital because it just doesn't make sense to let my patient progress before I start treating them. The biggest barrier to use of remdesivir uh, is the, the lack of IV access in the outpatient setting. And if a patient's sitting in front of me with that IV in the hospital, I'm gonna try to protect them and get them the treatment that they need. Uh, lastly, um, I've excluded um, discussion of other antivirals um, that I uh, would actually classify as viral mutagens, such as molnupiravir, because that's a different uh, mechanism of action and beyond the scope here. And I think there's uh, uh, concerns about um, efficacy and safe, public health safety uh, of molnupiravir, at least in some corners of the community. Thank you. So we're, we're going to move lastly on to, to Liz. Uh, and so Liz, despite Robert's best efforts, you know, the patient's disease has progressed uh, and, and they're now onto high flow nasal oxygen and, and probably will soon require mechanical ventilation and possibly some pressure support. What next? Yes, well, I mean, the first thing to say is if I fall unwell with COVID-19 and I'm hospitalised, can I please be admitted under Robert's care in his hospital? Because that sounds like exemplary management in my mind. By the time patients have gone to the intensive care unit, it's a different game now. They have progressed, they're critically unwell and they're at high risk of death. And even if they survive, there are likely to be long-term consequences for their period of time on the intensive care unit. So now it's about using anything you can in order to reduce inflammation and to mitigate the risk of, of death as much as possible. So when you get to this stage, I think the equation about risk versus benefits of treatment changes somewhat. Because the patient is already critically unwell, you certainly don't want to make that worse, but you want to give them every chance of survival from this what can be devastating disease. And actually here, most of the guidelines agree on the use of dexamethasone, certainly, on the use of an IL-6 antagonist, usually toxalizumab, and the use of um, baritizinib as well, and potentially the use of all three of those therapies if people aren't responding and appear to be progressing despite that. Of course, those therapies are not the only tools that we have. We also know more now about the optimal management of patients on the intensive care unit with COVID-19. And again, this should be a holistic effort to think about the patient in their entirety, looking for risks of things such as acute kidney injury, looking at and the potential for secondary infections, which we know some of these patients get, and trying to optimise their, um, their um, oxygenation. So it really then does become a multidisciplinary approach to caring for those patients to help them through, if they hopefully survive, that long road often to, um, to full recovery. Fabulous. Okay, so that brings us to the, uh, the end of our discussions for today. Before, before we finish, I'm going to go back to the wonderfully learned panel that we have with us today and ask them all for a one-line concluding remark uh, for today. So well, let's start with Aaron. 
Okay. Um, I'd say the take-home for me would be collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. Um, your colleagues are all working hard. We've all got the same goal. Make sure you're communicating with each other. And secondly, make sure you're staying on top of um, your circulating variants, and, and that's going to help all of us figure out what kind of therapeutics will help your patient. Thank you. Robert. Once a patient is hospitalized for COVID-19, Regardless of risk factors on paper, they've shown manifest risk, and I would start early use of an antiviral therapy, regardless of whether they're not yet on oxygen or whether they're on nasal cannula or high-flow nasal cannula oxygen. And I would impute a surrogate for their COVID-19 severity, and I will not deprive a patient that's on mechanical ventilation for another reason from access to an antiviral therapy. Thank you. Liz, finally. Yes, hard to follow those, isn't it? But I think I would say that COVID-19 remains a nasty disease associated with a lot of deaths. We're so fortunate now to have a number of different tools and approaches we can use to look after patients. And my take home message is don't be complacent. Use the therapies we've got. Let's try and protect and save lives. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SRU860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.